Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Anne Weisgarber about The Glovemaker, her third novel. Set in late 19th century Utah, The Glovemaker explores the complicated loyalties of Sister Deborah Tyler, a Mormon woman living in an isolated community, visited at times by men fleeing arrest on charges of polygamy, outlawed in the United States not long before. When a man shows up on Deborah's doorstep in January, though, she suspects he may have more on his conscience than plural wives, which means she must make a decision. January 11th, 1888. Bare knuckles pounded hard on my cabin door, someone wanting to be let in. My nerves leaped. Samuel, my husband, he was home. Safe. Finally. No, not Samuel. He'd call to me, Deborah, through the door. The knocking kept on, quick raps and short pauses. My heart thudded high in my chest. It wasn't my sister or any of her family. They denounced themselves. They wouldn't pound on the door this way. Neither would my neighbors. Trouble. I was in the kitchen part of the front room. The only thing between trouble and me was a door. A door I wasn't sure was latched. It was late afternoon. The light in the cabin was dim. Six paces from the door, I couldn't tell if earlier I'd bothered to slide the bolt into the catch. My pulse rushed. It was a man out there. I knew that as if the door had turned to glass and I could see through it. For almost four years, men came to my cabin carrying trouble on their backs, each one haunted and looking over his shoulder. Mine was the first cabin injunction they came to. They showed up during the spring. They appeared in the summer and early fall. But never now, never in January, when snowstorms reared up with little warning and filled mountain passes, blurred landmarks, and covered trails. And now, please join me in welcoming Anne Weisgarber. Hi, Anne. Thanks so much for agreeing to chat with me today. Thank you, Carolyn. It's my pleasure to be here with you. How did you become a novelist, meaning both what made you want to write novels and how, having decided you did, you did you go about mastering the craft? Well, um, I was always a reader, but I never considered writing a book. I always thought, you know, people who wrote books had a special glow about them, and I'd never had that glow. But to my great surprise, um, quite a few years ago, I stumbled across the photograph of an unnamed woman. And I just couldn't stop thinking about her. So it reached the point where I felt haunted by her. I just just thought, what was her story? Why has her name been lost? And so I decided to write a short story about her. And seven years later, that evolved into the novel, The Personal History of Rachel Dupree. But when I was working on this first short story that became the novel, I really didn't think about publication. I just wanted to give her a story Uh, And so it liberated me 
to do what I wanted to do. And, and I don't have a background in creative writing or in literature. Uh, so while I was working on the, the story and, and I felt this great obligation to give her the best story I could or do the best job I could for her, I took non-academic workshops from an organization in Houston, Texas, and, and that was Imprint. And these were um, classes for aspiring writers taught by published authors. And so I took about maybe six to eight of these workshops at night and learned the basics that way. And then the other thing I did, which really um, was just insane, but it, it helped. I hand copied Charles Frazier's Cold Mountain, that novel. I don't know if you know it. That's a long novel. <laughs> oh, oh, I don't recommend ever doing that again. If anybody wants to hand copy a novel, pick a really thin one. But this, by doing it, it taught me, it slowed me down and it made me look at Charles Frazier's word choices. It made me understand when to use dialogue and when to describe the scenery and and um, this mysterious thing called flashbacks, which I could not quite grasp what that was or how to how to navigate that, how you take readers from the present and um, make them or or show something about the past and then bring them forward to the present again. So I I learned all that from hand copying um, Charles Frazier. So so um, that's you know I I just set out to do this because I just wanted to give this um, this person in the picture a photograph. And here I am with three books now, um, to my great surprise. That's a really interesting story. I don't think I've ever heard anyone uh, who learned to write in that particular way. It sounds um, like a fascinating approach. So tell us a bit about the personal history of Rachel Dupree and your second novel, The Promise. Yes, um, the personal history of Rachel Dupree uh, takes place in South Dakota, what is today Badlands National Park, and and the setting is 1917, and it's about a ranch family who is, there's been a drought, and as a result of the drought, everything begins to fall apart for them, and they're placed in this um, uncomfortable situation of deciding how they're going to get through this and what they need to do to survive. And the two main characters have opposing ideas about how to, uh, or, or what is best for their families. Uh, and and um, I was lucky because when I was working on this book that I didn't ever think would be a book, the National Park Service gave me a writing residency so I was able to go out to the Badlands, and I lived in a ranger's uh, cabin for about four months. I'm sorry, uh, four weeks. It felt like four months at times. And and so I was really able to have a sense of the land and the environment. Um, it was a glorious experience. Then my other book, the second book, is The Promise, and it takes place in Galveston, Texas. So So the first book is in the Badlands where there's a drought. And then Galveston, Texas is an island surrounded by water. So I've just gone the opposite direction. But The Promise takes place in 1900 at the time of the 1900 storm, but today we would call it a hurricane. And this was the worst natural disaster to hit the United States because in a single day on September 8th, there were between um, four to 6,000 people 
killed in the hurricane. So the story um, begins about a week before the, the hurricane hits, and, and the characters are all dealing with their own personal hurricanes, not knowing that there is a storm out in the Gulf of Mexico that is about to hit the island. And what inspired you to write The Glove Maker? Well, The Glove Maker um, takes place in Utah. So I'm kind of all over the map. I'm South Dakota, Galveston, and now Utah. And it um, takes place in what is today, today um, Capitol Reef National Park. And um, my husband and I had been on vacation there. It was our second time there. And, and we absolutely love this park. The, it's, uh, the, the rock formations are massive. It's isolated. The terrain is rugged. And, um, but yet there's a, an area where the Sulphur Creek and the Fremont River converge. And in this little spot, there are orchards that were planted by the first white settlers in the 1880s. And the Park Service maintains the, the orchards. And so when my husband and I were there, we had taken a really long hike, about eight mi- miles, and it was a hike where we didn't see anybody else. And when we were finished, we went to the orchards to just relax. And we happened to be there during apple harvest season. And the Park Service keeps ladders in the orchard with small buckets, and visitors are allowed to pick the fruit. So, so we picked a few apples and... When that happened, I started thinking about those families who planted the first orchards. And so I started doing a little bit of research. And just for the pure fun of it, I wasn't thinking about writing a a story about it. But I discovered that there were eight families who had settled in this little area that is um, today called Fruita. But at the time, they called their little town Junction. And um, I thought, who the heck are these people? What brought them there? And I discovered that one of the families um, was a woman who owned 20 acres of orchards in her own name, and she was married, but the land was in her name, and I found that fascinating. And, um, and she and her husband did not, did not have children. And then I started digging a little deeper because she just captured my imagination, and I realized that her husband had disappeared from all historical records. He had disappeared from the census. And yet when she died, um, she was listed as being married and not widowed. So I started thinking about her. And then I did more research just for the fun of it, because that seems to be what happens when I go on vacation. Uh, I discovered that this little town of Junction was a place where men who were charged with polygamy uh, they were coming to this part of Utah to hide from the law. So all of a sudden, I thought, boy, there was a lot going on in this location, and and I think there's a story here. I agree. It's a great story here. Um, now, normally, I read the first page or two of a novel in my introduction. And in this case, I skipped over the very beginning, which involves um, the friend of the main character, Deborah. Uh, his name is Nels, mm-hmm. arranging to meet her husband, Samuel. And since you set it up so nicely, tell me, why did you start the story there rather than with Deborah herself? Well, I guess the, the, um, probably the uh, short answer is that's what my editor asked me to do. So uh, I think when I turned in the manuscript, I did not have the prologue that began with Nell's 
voice, my editor thought that I should um, add that. So I, I did do that. It was a great suggestion. But I think what why it works, or at least I hope it works, is that Nels, um, who does try to go find Samuel, the husband who has gone missing, um, he he um, ends up protecting Deborah by not telling her everything he knows or what he suspects. And so that becomes a theme in the book that um, these characters protect each other by keeping secrets. And when the story then switches to Deborah, she protects Nels by not telling him everything she knows as the story evolves. And, um, and that seemed to be historically accurate from what I could discover about this little community that they um, chose to just not talk about certain things. And uh, so, and also the other nice thing about beginning with Nels, or at least I hope it's nice, is that um, we, we already know that Samuel is missing. We already know that something has happened. And then when the story moves forward to Deborah's voice, um, we know that she's, she's worried and, and, and for good reason. And when we meet her uh, on that first chapter, um, it's about a month or so later, and she's alone, and as you just mentioned, and a man knocks at her door. And what makes her decide to open the door? Well, you know, this the small community also includes her sister and brother-in-law. And their cabin is the next cabin. It's about a half mile from where she is. And so she knows who's at her door when somebody is knocking. She knows, and I'm not giving anything away, that the chances are good that it's a man who is running from the law, a man who is accused of a felony, the felony of polygamy. And she understands that by helping an accused felon that um, this endangers uh, people's own well-being with the law. And so she decides to open the door to this man because she's fearful that if she doesn't help him, he'll go to the next cabin and that would be her sister's home. And she, her sister is younger. Her sister has small children, is expecting another child. Deborah wants to protect her sister, which again becomes a theme in the book where they're always trying to protect each other. And, um, and also when I had, I'd gone back to Bruta, which in the book is called Junction, I'd gone back and I looked at how the community was laid out. I was able to see where everybody's cabins were. And, um, I had made the decision that Deborah's is the first cabin. So she is the most vulnerable. She is the one that most of these men would have come to first. And so it, it just kind of seemed to move the story along a little bit more. And who is Deborah herself? What's her background? How did she end up in Junction? Uh, what kind of woman is she? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, Carolyn, because as I was writing the Deborah character, I was finding myself just really admiring her uh, more and more as I was working on her. And she is she is based loosely on a historical figure, but um, I do not know if this is really or what happens in the book. I don't know if this is her story or not. I'm imagining that it could well have been based on historical evidence, but she is in her late thirties and she's been married since she's 19 years old. 
And as I said before, she doesn't have children. And in the 1880s, that would have set her apart from many other women, regardless of what religion, uh, for a woman not to have children would have made her a bit of an outsider. But what especially makes her an outsider is that she has doubts about plural marriage. And she, her mother had um, been the first wife, um, and then her father marries a second wife. So she had seen what it had done to her mother to have, be kind of um, be almost set aside by the father when a new younger wife um, comes into the household. So Deborah as a character is um, she's an in-between person as I see her. She she was born in Utah. She was born into the church. The church is all she knows, and yet she has doubts. And so I see her as walking this narrow um, tightrope, doing this balancing act, belonging and not belonging. And because she can walk this narrow tightrope, she has a quiet strength. And also her husband, Samuel, who has gone missing, he's a wheelwright. And he travels to um, little to outposts, small little towns in southern Utah and northern Arizona to repair wheels or to make new wheels, a very important job in this part of the country. And because he travels and he's gone, she has to be self-sufficient. And I, and that's my way of honoring the historical figure who owned 20 acres of land in her own name. So I see her as quiet. I see her as self-sufficient. And I also see her as being capable of making decisions. And the other thing is that she makes gloves because Brigham Young, who had been um, a church leader and had led the people to Utah, he had declared that women should have some kind of skill so that they could take care of themselves. And so uh, I decided that Deborah makes gloves because her father had had tanneries. And so it seemed like a natural, um, natural career for her. And she's not the only one in Junction who has doubts about plural marriage. I mean, plural marriage is really an issue at this particular time in this particular place because it's been outlawed quite recently. So what is going on right. in the church and in Junction at, that Deborah and Samuel represent one part of? Yes. Um, well, historically, the community looked like these seven families um, identified as being Mormon but um, historically did not practice um, as more devout Mormons would have. So I could tell that it looked like they were a little bit of, they were outsiders. So working with that premise, I decided that my characters would also be outsiders, even though they said that they were still members of the church. But what was going on in the greater picture was that um, the president at the time who was, um, uh, Grover Cleveland, he was absolutely adamant about getting rid of polygamy. And so the federal government was cracking down on men who had more than one wife. And so they were, the federal government was sending deputies to Utah territory. It wasn't a state then. And they were arresting men who had more than one wife. And many of the men, uh, not all, but quite a few tried to run from the law if they caught wind that they were being chased. Because typically, if they were caught, 
there there was a trial, but the federal government had said that the only people who could serve on juries were people who were not active members of the Mormon church. So Mormons could not serve on the juries. So these men were almost always convicted because they were not being judged by their peers. They were almost always convicted. Many were in prison to up to five years, um, made to pay large fines, often had to sell their property, their um, businesses to pay these fines, and their families were just kind of left to fend for themselves. So these men would often try to run from the law, and they were coming to this part of Utah. So, so people like Deborah and Nels end up helping um, people who are, are in their church, knowing that the government could easily prosecute them as well. And it, the the whole history of the church is fascinating. This is history I didn't know anything about until I started working on this book. But just to give you a little bit of a background, that the church was founded in upper state New York and um, soon were not um, made welcome there. So they went to northern Ohio where they were soon not welcome there and they went to Illinois and they were not welcome there and they went to Missouri where they were not welcomed and they went to Illinois, back to Illinois where they were not welcomed and they went to Nebraska where they were not welcomed and finally to Utah. So within a short period of time, this was a church um, in desperate search of a safe home. And this is really, I mean, even though Deborah doesn't believe in plural marriage, this reality that when these men are arrested, there are, in case, some, many cases, more than one family is left more or less destitute. That, that's a real source of conflict for her. Right, right. And also, because this is the church that she was born into, um, she has a brother who was in the same circumstance, who um, had been chased and had been arrested. So, so she under she understands the the human cost, and she does say that the reason she helps these men um, is because of their children. She does it for them, not 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 for the men, but for their children, because um, the families then are left to to struggle on their own when these men are in prison. So she's very conflicted. She doesn't agree. And and when I was working on the novel, I was thinking so often about um, having somebody who you love do something that you do not approve of. And, you know, some families may kick that person out or some families might embrace that person and say, Regardless of what you do, I still love you. And so I was thinking about those issues when I was when I was working on this story. So tell us a bit about Deborah's own marriage and specifically her husband. You mentioned that he's a wheelwright, which is an obviously important profession. How does he end up wanting to be in Junction? Because a community of seven families in a wilderness is a really small community. I know. I know. I know. Isn't it something to think of? And, and yet it's very much the American story where um, people would just all of a sudden get restless and they could see the smoke from their neighbor's chimney. And it was like, that's way too close and I need to get away. So it, it's pretty much the American story, of, especially of the West. But Samuel in particular is one of these people who um, has great respect 
for nature um, and is an, admires nature and as such feels at home out in the open. But more to the point, Samuel's doubts about the church makes it uncomfortable for him to be in a tight-knit community of church believers. So he is better off in a community where um, the people um, don't practice the church as strictly as other places. But the the way he ends up in Junction and, and Deborah with him is that he has a stepbrother, Nels, who um, comes to Junction when his wife dies, Nels dies, his, his wife dies, and he comes to Junction to get away to deal with his grief. And Samuel and Deborah eventually join Nels because they don't want to think about him being on his own. So they join him to make sure that he's all right. And then it's for Deborah, it's a fresh start. She's not been able to have a child. And she's told herself that maybe in a new place, she would be able to have a child. That does not happen, though, for her. But all of them are looking for a little space um, between themselves and the church and also an opportunity to start over again as well. So all this time, I haven't asked much about Lewis Braden, uh, who is the man being hunted. Um, And I'm not going to ask you to say a lot about Marshall Thomas Fletcher, who's doing the hunting, um, in part because it's such an essential part of the story that I don't want to take the risk of giving away spoilers. But is there anything that you could tell them, um, tell us about them, how they fit into the overall themes of the story or what you think of them as personalities or what caused you to bring them in or something? Sure, of course. Lewis Brayden, as as you mentioned, is the man who comes to the door seeking help. And Deborah um, doesn't ask, but she assumes he's needing help because he has plural wives. She does know the law is after him, but she doesn't want to know why. But Lewis Brayden, for me, uh, represents everything about the church that Deborah and Nels and Samuel don't like. He's devout. Um, he's he believes in plural marriage. Uh, he justifies what he does because he believes he's a good religious man. And so he's, he's kind of that um, stereotype almost of the good church member. And uh, so that's what he represented for me. And then Marsh, M- Marshall Fletcher, who is the um, man who is pursuing Lewis Brayden, he represents everything about non-Mormons or, as the term goes, Gentiles. If you're not a Mormon, you were called a Gentile. Um, But he represents everything about Gentiles that makes Deborah scared of them. And he is the enemy. He is the law. He is the person who can arrest uh, men with plural wives. He is the person who can threaten their livelihood. He is the enemy. And uh, But eventually, as the story evolves, she begins to realize that the enemy is also a human being. And that's always a question that fascinates me. When does the enemy begin to lose the enemy status and just become a person? Um, But so, so these characters both represent it. And of course, you know, for the purpose of the story, I have to have um, 
a man come to the door seeking help. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have much of a story. And then I have to have the person who is pursuing um, pursuing Lewis Braden. Right. As you, I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking, you know, you mentioned earlier that one of the characteristics of this little community is that they protect each other and they protect yes. each other in particular by keeping secrets. And I'm thinking these two men in their own way do the exact opposite. They threaten the community and I guess they do keep secrets in a way, but they certainly are not out to protect anybody. Right, right. They they do have their own interest at heart and their own interests come first. And um and and that must have been what happened historically, because these men were hiding in this part of Utah, even though it was endangering other people's welfare. The law did come through and they would um you know, um they if if they would come and question people if they thought that they weren't getting the answers they wanted, they would inflict damage on people's property. So, so yes, these people have um, their own interests. They have their own agendas um, at heart. And, and of course, the people at Injunction, their agenda is to keep their orchards, to just keep their home. So everybody has a purpose here. And tell me a little bit about more about Nels. You mentioned that he's Samuel's stepbrother and that he lost his wife, but he's a really appealing personality, I think. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I know I, I, I found myself just really, really liking Nels uh, because, and it's not giving anything away, but, but he, you know, it's hinted that he's in love with Deborah and who is married to his, his stepbrother and, and his stepbrother is, not only a relative, but he's Nell's best friend. And, and so he's, he's complicated in that that's, that's a feeling that he has to keep hidden from Deborah. And, um, but, but he is, to me, represents the, the Western man who doesn't talk a lot. And of course, this is a time period where people didn't sit around and analyze their feelings. And, and so he's not a touchy-feely guy but you can count on him to come through. You can count on him to do what needs to be done to protect the community and to protect Deborah. And I, I really enjoyed um, the decision to make him an artist that uh, he draws um, pictures and that his cabin has some of the, the pictures that he has drawn. And I enjoyed that about him because I think everybody has that little side to them that doesn't always, it's not always revealed, but um, so he's, he's an artist at heart. He sees things that other people might not. What would you like readers to take away from The Glove Maker? Well, you know, I would love for readers to um, see this as just a, a, a very American story about the freedom of religion about the desire to have a home and to be left alone and to go about your own business, and also about the impact of government policy on everyday lives. And I don't want that to sound like an agenda, but um, a law that um, is written by people from a distance uh, may not really understand the long-term and the sweeping consequences. And I also hope that people have a little new understanding about um, uh, what was happening in the, in the uh, Mormon church at that time. 
I just realized that I almost forgot to ask you uh, about what's happening with the personal history of Rachel Dupree. It's it's scheduled to be a motion picture. Is that right? Well, you know, it's been optioned, and and the first option was back in 2011. So this has been an ongoing process. But yes, Viola Davis optioned it, and she, at last word, plans to play uh, Rachel Dupree, the lead character, and. Um, um, I don't know a whole lot of details, but I, from what I understand, and this is apt to change, they're hoping to start filming in the fall. So we will see. Like I said, this has been going on a long time, but there's they've made great progress later. So I'm knocking on wood as I say this, and so I, I hope it does happen. Oh, that's really exciting. I wish you all the it best is. with that. Yes. It, it uh, is exciting, and it's, it's very surreal. It's, it feels like it's happening to somebody else. Yes, I'm sure. Do you have a sense of whether they'll let you have anything to do with the screenplay? Do you want anything to do with the screenplay? Well, they've been really great. I have read um, about three drafts of the screenplay. I'm not the screenwriter. The screenwriter is Claire McCarthy, and she has been so gracious. And she has asked me for feedback, which I've given, and she's made changes based on that. But, you know, they're small. and Because I understand this is hers now. It's not mine. And, and I'm very pleased with the screenplay. I, I like it a lot. And, uh, and of course, some things in the book didn't make the cut. You know, you can't have everything in that. And I understand that. And screenplays are a whole different beast than a novel. But, um, but yeah, they've been great. They've asked um, research questions about the kind of music from the time period, a little bit about Buffalo soldier history. And um, it's it's been a wonderful experience. So... I don't have to, you know, this is this is just an unexpected thrill, I've, I've got to tell you. <laughs> That's so great. So what about you? What are you working on now? Well, I have started the next novel. I'm not very far along, but this one takes place in a little town in Texas. Um, it's Hearn, Texas. It's in central Texas in 1943. So it feels like I'm writing something very contemporary compared to what I've done in the past. But this is, this is when... Um, there were about 4,000 German POWs brought to central Texas because England could no longer house them. And um, many of these men came to Texas. They ended up picking cotton because the young men who should have been picking cotton were in Europe fighting the Germans. So again, I'm dealing with this whole thing about the enemy uh, showing up in your backyard. And then when do they become people. And for a while, I struggled with this story because, you know, the German language and how am I going to do this? And I realized, oh, yes, I'm telling this from the point of view of some of the townspeople. And that just seems elementary that I would have understood that from the beginning. But but once I figure that out, then the story is is starting to come together. But I'm, I'm a few years away from having that finished. I'm a slow writer. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Well, thank you, Carolyn. This has just been pure fun. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Anne Weisgarber about The Glovemaker. Find out more about her at www.annweisgarber.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. 
You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.